This is the Transportation Podcast, your B2B show for the best thought leadership in the industry, bringing you education, information, and inspiration only on MarketScale. Just to try to reduce crashes and keep traffic moving smoothly, they're going to want a computer behind the wheel rather than a human. If problems mean more money spent on transportation, it can hurt your bottom line. All the pressure is on the transportation side of things to keep on their marketing campaigns to hire more drivers. That's the biggest stress for the logistics market. Everyone has their ride. Let's hit the road. Right, welcome to this episode of the Market Scale Transportation Podcast. I'm your host, Tyler Kern. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode. You know, we're turning over the calendar to a new year, and that's always an exciting opportunity to look forward and to consider what the future is going to hold over this next year. And the transportation industry is evolving rapidly, and big changes could be on the horizon for 2019. So in this episode, we're going to talk to our correspondent, Elmer Gordado, and we're going to preview some of the trends that we can expect to see in the new year. He really dove into some of the projections and some of the stories and looked at some of the numbers uh, just as far as what we can expect in terms of growth in certain industries, what's rideshare going to look like, what about some of these uh, scooters, the scooter sharing and bike shares and all of these different uh, methods of transportation. How can we expect to see them grow or shrink or what could be on the horizon for 2019? Elmer joins us and he's going to break all of that down for us. This episode also features a conversation that our correspondent Scott Sidway had with Patrick Kennedy. He's an urban designer and member of the Dallas Area Rapid Transit Board. And he's going to propose something that sounds slightly radical at a time when cities are building bigger and bigger highways, just making them larger, adding more lanes, uh, and creating more infrastructure for cars. His radical idea is to tear down part of a highway in Dallas. And he argues that the removal of this section of highway will actually help Dallas reduce traffic and thrive more economically. So he says that the the benefits are are pretty wide for the city uh, to tear down this section of highway. So we're going to hear why exactly he feels this way and what the benefits are for the city of Dallas uh, at a time when that seems like a ludicrous idea, right? Highways are getting wider, not being knocked down. So uh, we're going to hear more about that from our correspondent, Scott Sidway, talking to Patrick Kennedy as well. So it's going to be a really interesting show. But first, let's get to that conversation I had with Elmore Gordado, our correspondent, talking about the trends in transportation for 2019. All right, joining me now on the Market Scale Transportation Podcast is our correspondent, Elmer Gordado. Elmer, thanks for joining me today, man. My pleasure, my pleasure. Excellent. Well, we're chatting about some of the big trends that we expect to see in the transportation industry in 2019. Uh, you've really dove in and, and, and made um, made a list of some of these big trends that you expect to see in 2019, Elmer. So let's run these down and just kind of talk through them one by one. Let's start with consumer vehicles. And uh, a big thing that we've seen uh, over the course of 2018 is just the rise in connected cars. So what do you see as far as the market value and where is that going to continue to go? So, yeah, that, that's all super interesting stuff because we th- these have been around for a while now, right? But I think we're finally hitting a point where the ubiquity of at least knowing what they are and understanding what they can do is, is there, right? So the latest market report shows that global connected car market is valued at $72.89 million as of 2017, right? And it's projected to hit $219 billion by 2025. And this is coming from a global research company called Technavio. And it seems pretty much on par with what we're seeing, right? If we're saying 2017 was at uh, $72 billion, and, you know, we're looking at five, six, seven, eight years from then, 
it seems pretty on par because we are seeing more and more connected cards. Even just in the last couple months, we did a News Minute piece where we reported that Ericsson partnered up with Volvo to provide them with cloud platform, with their cloud platform. And that was that was a deal that was going to last for the next five years, right? And we're already starting to see this explosion continue with not only connected cars, but vehicle to vehicle technology, right? Which this is cars talking to each other. Um, so generally, it's looking like it's uh, some healthy growth here, right? Yeah, so what, what's the next step? What do we expect to see then uh, down the road? Is it, uh, do you expect it to grow more just in terms of, of cars talking to one another, or is it, uh, is it something else? What's, what's the next step that we expect to see in 2019? So I think it's going to be a little bit at a time, right? I think the big step is just getting more of these cars you know, full of tech and, and, you know, we're seeing it with, uh, AI too, right? Like this last year in 18, we saw a bunch of cars now being Alexa enabled, right? And these, these are not even just luxury cars. And I think that's a big thing to note, right? This was a huge, you know, at first it seemed like a high end luxury kind of thing, but now it's, you know, every kind of car is having some kind of new, uh, you know, interface or software that's upgradable. And we're seeing this from Ford all the way to BMW and Lexus and Volkswagen. So we're seeing it everywhere. So I do think the next general step is going to be that, right? Is just getting slowly inching us to getting more used to our car talking to us and talking with other cars. So I don't think we're going to hit, you know, that autonomous self-driving car future next year. But we're going to slowly start to inch towards it as as more and more cars have more tech in them. And and that's just on par, right, with just how every industry is basically being inundated with tech and, and, and trying to digitize as much as they can. Yeah, that's a great point. A lot of times it's incremental steps and, and it feels like yeah, you're right that the next step would be uh, for, you know, the the. Uh, you know, this smart technology to come more to the to the common man, not so much just always in the luxury brands and the luxury vehicles. Uh, so what are some of the industry leaders saying when it comes to this stuff? What, uh, what are we hearing from executives? What are they expecting to see? So yeah, I found this really cool report that surveyed over 200 automotive executives, right? And they all seem to agree that generally speaking, things are looking good thanks to connected cars and V2V technology becoming more ubiquitous. And again, you know, when we say ubiquitous, we don't mean necessarily that they're all, you know, every car is a is up to these standards, but people are aware of it now and it's less of a strange or scary thing. Right. So and and they're also correlating, you know, more car connectivity to safer vehicles, which would lead to lower insurance premiums and overall better car security, too. So we're seeing a lot of these things that are that are hopefully going to have positive impacts on the average consumer. Right. In ways that maybe weren't so obvious at first. But, you know, I'm always down for a lower insurance premium. I am as well. That would certainly be a, a welcome improvement to my life. That's <laughs> that's for sure. Would you would you drive or like ride in a uh, self-driving car, like a completely autonomous vehicle? Oh, well, that's the question, isn't it? Um, yeah. I think I would because just generally I've, I think I've given up. Uh, you know, like when we talk about uh, just tech being in our lives and, and, you know, the cloud knowing everything and all these things, I, I, I've just given up, right? If I'm gonna, if, if Google's gonna know where I am, I'm at least gonna use Google Maps every single day I can, right? right so right. I, I, I view this kind of the same way. Like if this is the future, then I guess I'm in for it and I'm down for it if I'm gonna get something out of it. In this case, you know, not driving a car or having, you know, maybe not having my Uber driver talk to me for 20 minutes about something I don't wanna talk about. 
Um, so I'm all, I'm all game for it, generally speaking. Um, and I do get the concerns. And I think, you know, you always see those questions on like, you know, does the, will the car protect you or protect, you know, someone on the outside? Right. And, and I think that's definitely a, a, a big thing to, to think about. But generally for myself, you know, if that's how I go out, then, then that's it, I guess. But at least I, you know, I didn't have to drive. <laughs> I see what you're saying. You know, I, I, it's interesting that there's there seems to be a generational gap there where older people uh, have this, um, in general, just people that I've spoken to, and this is a very unofficial poll, but uh, people that I've talked to that are older are more excited and remember like the thrill of getting uh, their first car and really enjoy driving. Whereas younger people, I think, view it as a necessary uh, part of their day and a, a, not a necessary evil, but just a necessary part of life that if you can make it more convenient, we're down for that. And so it'll be interesting to see if it's adopted more by uh, younger generations uh, while it's being shunned by older generations or if there's, a, if there's adoption across the board. That's something I'm really curious to see as this moves forward for sure. Yeah, I think it's going to be, I think you're, you're right on it. I think it's definitely going to be the younger generation adopting it because the more we go into it, the 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 less people are going to remember, you know, the old way, quote unquote, right? And I do think also that it, it it's interesting to think about how, you know, my dad, big, big car guy, he was very disappointed when I bought a Prius just because it was, you know, the best uh, fuel efficient <laughs> option. Um, and I, and to me, again, it was, it very much felt like a utility, right? It's not like something I was excited about. Uh, so I don't know. I think that that's obviously a personal thing, but I do think you're onto something in that it, it probably will be the younger generation pushing for this adoption because at a certain point, they won't know anything else, right? Yeah, I, th- I think you're absolutely right. Let's move on to uh, another area where it might be uh, a little bit of old versus new. Uh, and as we talk about public transportation, one of the things that we've really seen in 2018 that uh, we'll, I expect to continue to see in 2019 is uh, this explosion of scooters and bike share options, uh, you know, dockless scooters, dockless bikes in major cities. Uh, what are you seeing as far as 2019 goes when it comes to these scooters and bikes that seem to be all over some of the major cities? Right. Yeah. I think this is going to be a huge thing for 2019 for, for a myriad of reasons. But, you know, 2018 was definitely the year of uh, tripping over bird scooters while just walking to work. And I think now we're starting to see, I think now we're going to see some of the ramifications as cities maybe tighten up and, and start to put some regulations. Right. But let's first talk about scooters. So Bird and Lime report 10 million and 11.5 million individual scooter trips respectively over the past year. So Lime says 40% of their city-based scooters trips even ended at public transportation hubs. So that's kind of huge, right? That's that's in a single year. Both of these saw a huge explosion. And more than $900 billion was invested in these two companies in just 2018, right? Wow. And, and both Uber and Google were big investors in Lime specifically. So, you know, we're seeing big players really take note and see this, this insane explosion of of uh, scooters and and I mean you guys are in Dallas. How much are you seeing it there? Oh, it's all over downtown, and you know it, it makes a lot of sense. Like uh, around downtown Dallas, if you need to get from one side to the other, you could get there a lot quicker using one of these scooters. And uh, you see guys just in full-on business suits, you know, rocking down the street on one of these Lime or Bird scooters, and uh, it's all over the place. And it's really replaced the bikes uh, very, very quickly in terms of uh, what you see way more of. Uh, the scooters have certainly uh, taken over downtown Dallas. That's for sure. Yeah, the interesting thing is that, you know, a place like Dallas totally makes sense because it's a it's a big hub, right? But even where I'm at, I'm in Columbia, Missouri, 
we have these bird scooters and lime scooters everywhere. And the interesting thing I was thinking about when it happened, I think they came into the city around the summertime. I was like, okay, what's going to happen when it starts to snow? You know, that, that it, it's something I didn't think about because I first saw these over in LA and San Francisco, right? Right. And, uh, well, when they snow, they are just covered and buried in snow. <laughs> so, yeah, it, that's another thing that, like, now you'll be walking down and and you'll just step on one without knowing you're gonna, it's going to happen. So, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I'm, I'm definitely, you know, I've used a bird before. I, I, I get the appeal and I, uh, I mean, it just, it feels good. It, it, like it, a scooter, I haven't used a scooter since I was like 12, maybe. Yeah, same here. So, uh, so I'm into it. But another interesting thing, and, and, and it's something that, um, I didn't really research until today, but I, I was always thinking about is like, how are these things charged, right? Who takes care of this? And, and you know, I, I later found out that both companies pay who they, what they call chargers or juicers uh, to pick these up, charge them, and then drop them off at different hubs. So that seems to be the most significant cost and obstacle to creating thicker margins for both of these companies, right? Because it's, it's, it's hard to tell what kind of longevity these scooter companies will really have because they're going to be completely reliant on people's need for a side hustle, right? So if one day we're at a point where every where most people have full-time jobs and aren't looking for a side hustle, where does that leave them, right? So right. I'm curious because – and I think like replaceable batteries is a thing people talk about. But then that's still something someone has to do, mm-hmm. right? And I'm pretty sure they don't have an office in Columbia, Missouri, so – it's going to be fascinating how they deal with that variable, right? That is completely outside of their control. Yeah, and I'm also curious just to see how, uh, you know, how they continue to do, you know, after a couple of years of being in some of these markets. Like, they're the hot new thing right now in town, but will they continue to be used day in, day out by people in Dallas when they aren't, you know, the new fresh thing? Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm curious to see that and whether or not they have the kind of staying power that I think that they're, they're hoping for. Um, you, you mentioned earlier that, that Uber had invested in some of these scooters, and I want to talk a little bit more about ride sharing because um, there, there's been some, uh, I would say, uh, controversy just about Uber and Lyft, and Uber has had a rough 2018. What does 2019 look like for these companies? And I think a big change might be on the horizon for both of them. Yeah, exactly. And this is something, I, again, I... I it's crazy that these companies have been around for so long. Uber, 10-year-old company, such a staple. Neither of these companies, Uber and Lyft, have gone public yet. And 2019 is going to be the year they do that. They've both started, you know, this process. And, and you know, they've been battling for the market share for years now. And, and like you said, Uber did not have a great year, uh, you know, in regards to how they were viewed by the press and everything. So that really gave Lyft an opportunity to come in and take some of the market share. Because we're looking at, you know, the current market share... Uber owns 65% of it, Lyft owns 31% of it, and that's only leaving 4% for other companies. And honestly, before today, I don't think I could have named a third company. Could you? Uh, I, I I was sitting here trying to think of one as, as you were saying this, and I, I honestly can't think of one. Yeah, the ones the, the biggest ones in that 4% are ones called Curb, Via, and Get with two Ts. And never heard of either of them. So Yeah, that's probably yeah. That, that's not a good sign for, for those other companies. No, no. And so, yeah, Uber's definitely dominating this. And, and, you know, even with the bad press, it didn't really seem to hurt them that much because Uber is a giant compared to Lyft. And underwriting proposals from Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley reportedly project that the startup could be valued at $120 billion next year, which would make it the largest IPO in history. Wow. Which is kind of nuts, right? And But it also makes sense because I think when you think about Uber – 
you don't have that same trepidation we just had about the scooters, right? I think from day one, I remember the first time I used Uber, it was a moment of, oh, wow, we're in the future. This is it. Yeah. I, I did this with my phone. I can't believe this is real. So, you know, it's going to be interesting to see how those two play out. And, you know, like I said, Lyft's also going public. And the interesting thing is, although they're smaller than Uber and have a smaller market share, Lyft's revenue growth has outpaced Uber in recent years with a 200% plus annual growth rate since 2014. So they are smaller, but they do have a more impressive, you know, annual growth rate. So with that considered, it's it's going to be really interesting to see what happens once both of these companies go public. And if uh, Lyft could beat Uber to the, uh, you know, and, and go public first, you wonder if that does something, if that would take a little bit of the shine off of Uber when they eventually go public, if Lyft can kind of beat them to that punch. It, you just wonder, how, you know, how much that might affect things as well. Um, I think I think it would totally affect it. Really? Like, yeah. Yeah, because the, the interesting thing, too, is that, while I think Uber has to take longer just because they are a bigger company. So I think it's very likely that Lyft will come out first. And that's going to that's going to see the market share completely shift, honestly, because I I can't imagine that they're going to they're going to go public even remotely close to each other solely based on on just their sizes. Right. It's just it, it, they're not one to one at all. Right. That'll be really interesting to see, but you're totally right about uh, the first time you take an Uber, it does feel like you're in the future, and it reminds me a little bit of... of you know, like the first time you used iTunes or the first time right. uh, you, you did something along those lines, where you you noticed and you can you kind of felt an industry shifting. And you, you're right, Uber's been around ten years now. That's kind of that's that's surprising for me to hear. But uh, you know, th- there's there's always. Uh, a moment where you feel an industry shift like that, and you just know that that this new company has beat uh, the established uh, people to the punch. You know, so whether it's you know it's regular taxis or other uh, options that you had for transportation before, uh, the first time you take an Uber, you think, yeah, this is definitely the future, and uh, and the rest of the industry is going to be you know scrambling to keep up. And so I think we've seen more of that. Just as more and more people take Ubers, and it becomes a more widely adopted technology and 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 method of transportation, you've certainly seen uh, more of a drop in terms of people taking taxi cabs and that sort of thing. So oh, yeah. that'll be interesting to see if 2019 continues that trend as well. And and going back to uh, you know these last mile option scooters, I also want to touch base on bike sharing bikes. Yeah. Right. Because that's another big thing that, that uh, it seems like, I don't know if they're necessarily competing one-to-one, right? Scooters, because I do think they might have different audience, different audiences, but you know, bike shares, they, they had a good year, too. They're, they're reporting 88 million rides were taken on 42,000 bike share bikes. And according to TechCrunch, this number is expected to continue to grow in 2019. And in 2013, they had about 700 hubs across the, the U.S. But by this last year, 2018, they reported 1,600, right? So they doubled since then. And, and a bulk of these systems are dockless, right? So that goes back to the scooter situation where I do think we're going to have to wait in 2018 and see how this plays out because we're already seeing large cities like LA and Paris evaluating and looking to set limits and regulations to deal with not only safety concerns, but also just street overcrowding because it's a it's a legitimate issue to think about when you know a city wasn't built to have 200 scooters and bikes just airdropped into the middle of it. So... I think that's the big thing to look out when we're talking about public transit. It's not necessarily going to be how scooters are going to get better or how bike share systems are going to get better, but how cities are going to react to them now that they're 
they've been there long enough to to be able to prove and examine something, you know? Yeah, that's a great point, because Dallas didn't have any type of regulation in place for these, and all of a sudden, like you said, overnight, there were, you know, it felt like 500 bikes just dropped right around the area where I work, and... uh, it, it really did feel like there was no plan in place for how to deal with it. But over the next couple of months, uh, you know, the city council got together and put put in some regulations, and now there are far fewer bikes. You see them stacked neatly, like, in certain spots around the city as opposed to just on every street corner. So you're right. I think, I think as more regulation comes in on the city level, there will be... Uh, an adjustment that will have to be made by some of these companies, whether it's the number of bikes or where they're located or how many people they can employ to go around to these various locations. I think those will all be uh, big adjustments that will have to be made by these bike share companies. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Let's uh, let's wrap up and, and hit aviation real quick and, and just talk about the number of people flying. I know that uh, in the past we've talked a little bit on this podcast about uh, just with fuel prices being down, that more people are traveling uh, through the air and, and are, are, are using airfare as a way to get around. What have you seen and what are, what are we projecting for 2019 in terms of uh, air traffic? So Tyler, I'm so happy you brought up fuel prices because that's a that's going to be a big thing that's going to come into effect in 2019. So according to an analytics firm uh, called SNMP, global air traffic remains relatively strong, but they're they're projecting that growth is about to start moderating, and they attribute the, the strength of global air traffic right now to overall economic conditions being pretty positive. However, they predict that the growth is about to level off as airplane companies uh, are going to have to start raising their prices to recoup what they're paying for higher fuel prices, right? Which is interesting because I was also under the impression that fuel prices were only going down, but apparently that's not the case. They've actually doubled since what they were at their lowest a couple years ago. And on top of that, with foreign policies being how they are right now, some even predict that that might catch up to the U.S. in 2019 and we'll see fuel prices taking even a bigger hit. So it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out because, yeah, there was a 6% increase in people flying this year, which is pretty good because we haven't seen an increase that big in a while. Mm -hmm. But overall, it seems like it's not looking great for the future if, uh, you know, fuel prices continue on this new pace and if, uh, you know, global tensions, uh, you know, affect fuel rates uh, as we go forward. Yeah, that's a really good point, actually, is just uh, with some of the concern with foreign relations, uh, you know, you, you don't love to bring politics into it, but it obviously has an effect on some of these industries and the way that we view fuel prices and, the, and that sort of thing. And so we have to take that into account when we talk about some of these things because it, it's all interconnected and it all matters. So it'll be really interesting to see how that continues to develop in 2019. Right, right. And then, and then the last thing when, we, when we're talking about aviation that I think is also interesting to, to think about is how airport infrastructure has been expanding and exploding in the last couple of years. We ran multiple different pieces on how LED technology was making its way into airports, how self-help technology is more and more prevalent now, and even about some robots you know, entering airports. A, a, a crazy example I read about was how the Geneva Airport has a robot they tested called LEO. And basically, at this robot, passengers can check in by scanning their boarding pass, and then they can drop their bags inside the robot, and then the robot will deliver it to the security personnel. So wow. even in that realm, you know, in, in the most innocuous things, we're, we are seeing some changes. And again, like we said earlier, like tech is consistently, you know, the trends we're seeing in, 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 in other industries are pretty much going to be parallel in almost every industry when it comes to tech adoption and digitization and all that good stuff. So it, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. But 
I mean, I'm all for a better airport experience, so. Yeah, and you use the key word there, and it's experience, and that's one word that I think we've seen uh, used across a bunch of different industries. But with the airport, uh, I, I think people are no longer uh, viewing it as just, a, you know, a, a vehicle for I show up here and I get taken from this place to this place. But uh, airport designers and, and the people that run these places are looking at how do we make this a an experience that is, you know, convenient and uh, as tech forward as possible so that the experience overall by consumers is as good as possible. Uh, and, and so that's something we've seen across a lot of different industries as well is no longer viewing it just as a utility, but also as, as an experience. So, you know, bringing in pro AV and bringing in a couple of other, uh, industries to make it uh, a smarter and better overall experience has been, uh, has been something we've seen in 2018. And I would expect to see that continue in 2019. Yep. Yeah. I, I, I couldn't agree more. Well, that is Elmer Guardado. He's a correspondent here at MarketScale. Elmer, thank you so much for joining me on the Transportation Podcast. Again, Tyler, my pleasure. All right, thanks to Elmer Guardado, our correspondent there, helping us preview the transportation trends for 2019. All right, coming up next on the Transportation Podcast, we're going to take a look at a bold proposal in the city of Dallas to tear down a highway completely to make room for homes, businesses, and public transportation. Patrick Kennedy from the Dallas Area Rapid Transit Board spoke with our correspondent Scott Sidway about his wish to tear down Highway 345 and why taking away a major link between downtown Dallas freeways could actually help improve traffic rather than congest it more. And he's also going to talk about why the removal will help Dallas thrive economically. So it's going to be a really interesting conversation. I'm curious to hear some of the ideas that Patrick has because these seem like unconventional ideas, right? The, that tearing down a highway could actually help improve traffic congestion. So we're going to take a look at that coming up next. I think it's going to be really fascinating and you're going to want to hear what he has to say. Coming up next on the Market Scale Transportation Podcast. You know, we've got this this conversation that we've had for a while now or that you've been having, Patrick, uh, and it all stems from a proposal that you're calling a new Dallas. And I'll, and I'll read the exact quote from this proposal. It's Highway 345 is falling apart. We think it should be torn down. So there's a lot of people with a lot of questions when they hear that and they say, wait, they want to tear a highway down in Dallas. That sounds illogical. So let's just start with this. Tell us about this project, this proposal. What's the premise behind it? Where did this all begin? Sure. Well, I mean, to where it all began was me moving to Dallas out of school and I wanted to live close to where I worked, which was in downtown. And there wasn't a whole lot of housing downtown at the time. This was the early 2000s. And I was living over sort of in the Deep Ellum area and would walk under this highway every single day and would look around on my walk. And it wasn't exactly the most pleasant walk in the world. It's not exactly what you would consider this romantic urban walk of cities around the world uh, where you would find boarded up buildings, storage facilities, parking lots, vacant property. And every day I would basically wonder, this should be more valuable land than it is. And through, I started to think more about how, did, how does transportation infrastructure affect real estate as well as, of course, just the function of the city? At the same time, I was following along uh, things that were going on in San Francisco where they had two highways damaged by the Loma Prieto earthquake in 1989. And eventually they decided, mm -hmm. hey, it's too expensive to repair these things. Let's just get rid of them. Uh, as well as in Seoul, South Korea, uh, there was a mayoral election where the uh, CEO of Hyundai, of all places decided to pick up this proposal where somebody said, let's remove this highway that's through the center of the city. And he ran for mayor on that platform 
and he won. And the first thing he did was blow up the highway, essentially. And that those were sort of the first couple major ones, aside from some in the 1960s and 70s that had fallen down, such as in Portland and, and in West Side in New York. But what's interesting is that every highway that's ever entered a city, has been in, introduced into a city, has made the area worse. And every highway that has been removed from the center of a city has made areas better, has made the city better. And now that's, fasc- that's fascinating because it almost sounds counterproductive just on face value, right? Because you're, you're saying that, you know, taking away lanes of traffic will make things easier to get around and will improve a city. Just, I think you're about to go into that, but can you just explain sure. and why a, that is, how that is? And a lot of cities are inherently counterintuitive because they are complex systems that behave in, in sort of unusual ways. But when we say take away lanes, we're not necessarily taking away actual lanes. We would actually be adding lanes and improving the actual street network. And that's where highways have been fundamentally uh, sort of dangerous or, or, or negative in terms of cities as well as mobility, because by nature, they're limited access. There's only a few ways on and a few ways off, which means they're, they're going to create choke points, especially in areas that are inherently congested, which is downtown areas, the most dense areas where the most economic activity is supposed to be happening. And instead, I mean, what you see around the country is, or around the world even, is places that decided not to introduce highways into the center of their city, like Vancouver or, or London. They actually have much more inherent capacity uh, in the street network than they would had they brought the highways in. And so it's, it's really um, fundamentally about what the highway, are the highways actually improving things? And I think you have to ask the question, you know, people always accuse me of being anti-highway. It's like, no, I'm not anti-highway. <laughs> you have to break down the difference between highways in the center of cities and highways as they were originally intended, which was to link metropolitan areas and then effectively go around them. And, and that's what we found digging up uh, President Eisenhower's uh, memos in his library that said he, they were never supposed to go through the center of cities. One, because it would, you know, he was trying to move troops across the country. And it wouldn't be effective to move troops if you're going through congested parts of the city. But he also didn't want to displace neighborhoods. And that's what highways invariably did. And so at the end of the day, when you're thinking about building cities and infrastructure being supportive of the function of cities, you're trying to optimize mobility while also maximize the value of land. Uh, So by maximizing the value of land, you maximize the utilization of the land and the tax base, which allows you to make, you know, maintain the infrastructure. Uh, but, sure. but if highways to the center of the city are not improving mobility, you know, we look at 345, it's a parking lot for six hours a day and it devalues the land around it, then it really doesn't have much utility. Right. Now, before we get into the specifics of 345, let's just establish this for those in the Metroplex in Texas that might not understand exactly what this is. Where is 345? What is that stretch of highway in relations to Dallas? Sure. 345 is the highway that links 45 with US 75 and you know the three in front of it is, is effectively a, a interstate term for a link between two highways and it, right. it separates downtown from Deep Ellum it was effectively the last uh, highway of the inner loop around downtown to be completed and it effectively displaced the equivalent of about 54 city blocks it's a it's a huge highway that carries about 160,000 cars per day uh, sometimes more than that, which is why it can be, you know, even less effective at, at moving cars. Uh, and it was built around 1973. And we started this proposal 
around 2011, 2012, when we realized, hey, this thing's on a 40-year lifespan and it's year 39. So what do we do next? Mm -hmm. And so we said, hey, let's get out in front of it and let's not just think about this from a a vehicular throughput standpoint, but let's think about transportation, but let's also think about economic development, quality of life, and what are the needs of the city. Now, it turns out TxDOT has spent about 120, 130 million to uh, repair the various cracks and uh, things that have uh, been deteriorating over the years. And that has been- Those are the things that come with age, right? The instability, yeah. Right, and it's been in various states of disrepair since early 2000. Uh, and it effectively always will be until it's rebuilt in some form or fashion. See, that's 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 fascinating because you don't really ever think about uh, alternatives. Like, if this highway wasn't here, what would it be? You know, what what options would we have? And I think that's the most interesting thing about this. So, you talk about how it it could be difficult, you know, to convince. Or you didn't talk about. It. I know a lot of people say it could be difficult to even convince people to tear down a highway and put things in its place. And you're making very good points. So let me ask you this. So let's say you tear down this link, this this 345 section. What would what would go there? You know, what would go there to make Dallas a better city? And how would that make Dallas a better city? And that's and that's really a necessary way to frame it because when people talk about highway removals, highway tearouts, the natural assumption is to say, I'm losing something. I'm losing a way for me to get somewhere. And what we're saying is, no, we're actually going to replace it with a better, more functional city, as well as a better, more functional transportation network. Uh, One, that it gets replaced with uh, several urban boulevards because of the way that the highway is so big, takes up so much land and sort of snakes through uh, the city grid. It really disconnects a lot of the other north-south connections uh, across the city. And so we would actually replace and rebuild several of those. So when I say we're not actually losing lanes of traffic, we'd really be going from eight lanes of traffic to more like 16 plus, but instead of going either five miles an hour or 65 miles an hour, depending on the time of day, you're going (laughs) 25 miles an hour through the city. Uh, You could actually park and you could shop at businesses. And that's really what we're trying to replace ultimately with because you know, we're talking about repositioning 180 acres of land next to the downtown of a major American city. And that means we can build, uh, we can deliver a lot of affordable housing, which is something that's needed. Uh, we're trying to build a second uh, subway line of the, the transit network, which is necessary because we only have, you know, we've got four rail lines that all converge into one line. So we have to build a second line through downtown. And it would be massive amounts of commercial development as well. And so at the end of the day, it ends up being tax base. And what we've calculated is that we're looking at something in the neighborhood of 110 million per year to the city's coffers. It's actually, it's really funny when you put it in perspective of instead of going five miles per hour or 60 miles per hour, you're going in Norfolk. Because that's so true about a lot of uh, parts of Dallas when you're driving around, especially, you know, the rush hour. So you're mentioning business, real estate, you know, in your proposal, you know, it's a very lengthy proposal. It's a a new Dallas.com if you'd like to read it for yourself. But you, you mentioned in there, it's mentioned that oftentimes, you know, transportation dictates real estate. You know, it, it, because if if there's a highway there, it would it would you know affect whether or not houses can be built because it's more access. But uh, what what would this do for that area economically and financially? How much of a of a boost would it be for the city to put these businesses and apartments or homes or whatever kind of housing there? 
Yeah, sure. And there, there would always be some kind of, of public investment. You know, infrastructure takes it. You know, infrastructure also requires it to maintain it. And what we've guessed is that we, and I shouldn't say guess, what we've sort of extrapolated from other highway removals around the country is that we're looking at about a public investment of the neighborhood of 200 to 500 million. And that was um, substantiated by TxDOT study of the same thing. And that would basically remove, pay to remove the highway, rebuild the interchanges, and rebuild the city streets. And then that would effectively turn over a lot of public land, public right-of-way land, to private development. You would need the city to come in and basically put uh, development guidelines and standards in place so it's not just you know, free-for-all in terms of what kind of development goes in, but ensures that it's quality development. It ensures that there's uh, certain tiers of affordability levels because the land is so valuable and uh, we also have an extreme need for a variety of affordability levels for workforce housing that the city would actually have the leverage to deliver that where it needs to be, which is next to jobs and transit in a location efficient manner. And in our most aggressive scenario from an economic impact standpoint, and this was done in 2011, 2012, when the market wasn't quite as hot as it is now, we were looking at about $4 billion worth of private investment that would go into the city. I mean, that would nearly double uh, the tax base of what downtown is now. Uh, and some major uh, private real estate groups have since looked at it and they're thinking more like five or six billion. They, they can be a little bit more aggressive, especially since right. the, the market's a lot hotter and I prefer to be conservative and, and uh, you know do better than the projections. But still, right. we're talking about, it would be a major impact that would, and the, the, the larger intent too is to sort of reverse this inertia that's creeping towards Oklahoma and try to bring development and investment back towards the center of the city and the southern sector. That's interesting you bring that up too because I've lived in North Texas my whole life and I've noticed it since I was little. I grew up in Plano uh, and I've noticed everything move north. Like right now, it's it's uh, it's it's not Plano, it's Frisco and it's McKinney and Little Elm and Prosper is blowing up and like you said, moving towards Oklahoma. Um, keeping that in Dallas would be, like you mentioned, it would be a, a fascinating thing to do, especially um, – just for all the businesses and homes, like you mentioned. So let me ask you this. How does it get done? You know, how do you convince uh, the powers that may be, this is what we need to do? How do you lay out the finances and the the possible um, benefits of this? Because I'm sure someone somewhere is saying someone loses in this situation, right? There's got to be a situation where this isn't good for somebody. So for, let me, it's kind of a two part question. What is that thing, sure. you know, where somebody does somebody lose and two, how do you convince, you know, the powers that may be to make this happen? Yeah. And that's a great question in that, you know, there's always pros and cons to everything. And this, I think we've been able to, um, really unite both the grassroots and the business community around that. And that sort of gets to the second part of the question. And there's not many cases, I think, in Dallas where you actually do have the grassroots and the business community getting aligned uh, on many That's issues. And, and I think we've been able to sort of walk that fine line by demonstrating, hey, these are all the pros. On the other hand, yes, there are some cons if you don't manage it well. And, and that becomes issues like gentrification, right? Because then we hear that a lot that, hey, if you're bringing that amount of investment, that could price me out. And, well, and you know, there, there are strategies to deal with that. And we just have to put those in place once we get to the point of, hey, you know what? It's better for the city to remove uh, this piece of infrastructure and rebuild the city. And, you know, I think we've been pretty successful at 
uh, steering the, the political arguments and, and helping candidates that support this idea uh, win elections. And I'm pretty confident that it's going to be a, uh, it's a pretty big significant issue in the 2019 mayoral election. And so right. that's, you know, that's really where it comes down to is once you get a majority of council and the support of um, champions that are elected and have that mandate to do these kind of things, that's how they get done. And that's, you know, when I pointed out Seoul, South Korea, you know, it takes that elected champion because they have that mandate. Same thing happened in, in Milwaukee. Well, they removed a freeway because it was going to be $75 million to replace it. And they said, why don't we just spend $25 million and get $500 million in tax base? And so, right. you know, that can make sense logically to a lot of people. But, you know, eventually you have to have that, um, that bully pulpit to sort of carry it forward. And I take it you point to those cities, and you mentioned San Francisco a little bit earlier as well as, as you know, places where this has happened. And it's worked, right? I mean, mm -hmm. that's that's uh, a resume essentially that you point to. Mm -hmm. And and similarly, I mean, there's the flip side to it as well. You look at like the 405 in in Los Angeles, which is the uh, busiest freeway in the entire country, and they've recently spent 1.6 billion dollars to expand it, to widen it, and it's now slower than what it was before. And so it's like, what's what are we really spending for here, and, and what's the right. outcome that that we desire? And meanwhile, while they were working on that highway congestion actually kind of improved because people adapted. And that's really how you address the issue of congestion is not just trying to build our way out of it. It's one, we have to shorten trip links, which means we've got to densify and build in more compact walkable areas. And two, we've got to get people out of cars. And if, you know, right. if we've got 95% of our trips are by car, we're going to have congestion. <laughs> it's well, and, and also inevitable. a lot of these, you know, like like 345, for example, you, you meant it's, it's the what connects 45 to 75. It's that link. 45 is the route you take to get to Houston. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in your your proposal on a new Dallas.com, it says, you know, a lot of times people are aren't taking those routes necessarily to get to a city. They're using right. it to pass through a city, right. and you you pointed to that in your your proposal as to reasons why this would actually decrease traffic. Is that I take it that's the same thing here, right? And that's a, that's one of the key premises too. Is that if we're trying to make downtown Deep Ellum and that sort of core area of the city a place where we want people to live and work and play and all of those things, do you really want truck traffic? polluting the air going through there as well. And it's a key, you know, it's a key interstate commerce route, but it doesn't have to be because it's not even good for that, right? The, the truckers in the trucking industry don't want to get stuck in congestion as well. And so you actually really want to reroute those around the city. And yeah, it makes for more distance, but it rarely makes for more time for that kind of commerce to go around the city. Uh, and that really gets to sort of the Jane Jacobs idea that you know, if you're going to the city, you need small infrastructure to get to small locations, right? Whether it's a business, a home, you know, a restaurant, you need small infrastructure to get there. But if you're going to a big place like a metro, yeah, you take the highway or you take eventually maybe high-speed rail to get between Houston and Dallas or you fly. That's big infrastructure to get to a big place. And let's say, you know, this does get... You know, this all this work you've put into this gets approved, and they say, you know what? Let's we're going to do this. We're going to knock three forty-five down, and we're going to go through the proposals and the ideas that you guys have put on the table. What kind of timetable would that be for the city of Dallas? It's to be determined, really. Uh, you know, there's there's some that say, hey, TxDOT has spent a hundred some million to keep the thing standing for another twenty years, and that's one timeline. 
there's another timeline that says the private real estate interests uh, can get together and say, we need to accelerate this because your hundred million is nothing compared to the four billion in private investment that this could leverage. And mm -hmm. if they're willing to essentially take that um, maintenance liability off TxDOT's hands, I think that's something that could be expedited, especially given, you know, back to the D2 or the second um, subway line through downtown, those are things that we really kind of need to design and plan and construct in concert because the infrastructure is so complex if we're trying to reroute highways and subways all over and around each other, it'd be a lot easier if we just sort of had one singular master plan to really control all of that and figure out sort of the financing related to both the public and private investment. Right. So that could be you know, something, I mean, that, that alternate timeline, I think, is something that takes place in the next eight years and becomes uh, the next mayor's legacy. The related to the legacy, a funny story is that... that yeah that CEO of Hyundai that ran for the mayor of Seoul, he ended up becoming president of South Korea afterwards because it was such a success. <laughs> wow, interesting. So so that could be a platform for some, uh, some Dallas mayoral If somebody's ambitious enough. <laughs> well, unfortunately, that is all for this week's episode of the Market Scale Transportation Podcast. Thank you all so much for listening. And thank you to everyone who helped contribute to this episode as well. To Elmer Gordado, our correspondent, who joined me for the first segment of the show. Thank you to Scott Sidway for conducting that interview with Patrick Kennedy. Thank you to Sam Kingma for editing this episode, making sure it sounds spiffy as well. We certainly appreciate that. And thank you to everyone who has listened to this episode. And if you wouldn't mind sharing it around with other people in the industry, with friends, family, neighbors, anybody that you think might enjoy this content, uh, we would certainly appreciate that. You can also subscribe to uh, get more episodes just like this as soon as they drop uh, by hitting subscribe on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Just make sure you stay up to date with the latest news in the industry with the Market Scale Transportation Podcast. We will be back again soon with another episode of the podcast. But until then, I've been your host, Tyler Kern. Thank you so much for listening.